and welcome back to the 6am run podcast. I am your host, Mark Paisant. Thank you so much for joining the show again. We are so glad to have you and I'm sure you're going to really enjoy our host this week. And by the way, this show is brought to you by 6am run and 6am run.com. Head over to the website to sign up to get 20% off of your purchase. This week, this show, we have Dan Reed, known as the Culinary Libertarian. So Dan, thank you so much for being a part of the show. If you don't mind, just kind of introduce yourself for the audience. Hello, audience. My name is Dan, and I suppose the culinary part, which uh, Mark and I were talking before we started recording, is the part that fits into the show. And so in that respect, I've been in food in some aspect pretty much my whole life. Every position there is in the kitchen, I've worked it, including busting suds. Uh, ended up being head chef, head baker, pastry chef. So <laughs> I got the food part nailed. And besides that, the libertarian part is, well, that's the politics side of things. And probably outside the scope of this show, but maybe not, the politics of food comes in lots of ways, including the monopoly of the meat industry under the Wholesome Meat Act of 1967. But that's other stuff. But mostly I'm here for the food. That might be the other stuff, but I think we're still going to talk about. And the first thing, and I'm guessing you probably get this all the time, where did the name the culinary libertarian come from? Well, it isn't nearly as inspired as one might think. I was trying to come up with an idea for a blog because I listened to a podcaster who said, hey, you need to make a blog to make some money. Well, (laughs) did the first, waiting on the second. This is really stupid. So the person who I was listening to is also a libertarian, and you could get a deal to get hosting because you got to pay for hosting, and you could save some percentage on it by hosting through his link. So I said, okay, I'll do that. Now, here's where the dumb part that comes in. I thought because I was getting my hosting from a link from a libertarian, it had to be a libertarian show. Well, how idiotic is that? But so I pondered and pondered and pondered and came up with that. And so it kind of stuck and that's where we are. So I mentioned to you, there's an interesting twist to all of this. And the interesting twist is I'm 99% certain I'm changing the name of the show, keeping the name of the blog the same, because there's, if you don't blog, you don't know about domains and URLs and pretty links, and the amount of effort it takes to redo something like that is immense. But I want to change the show name to Eating Liberty, which... Eating Liberty. I like it. Eating Liberty. I like it. It's more focused on what's going on, still keeps the food and liberty part. In the last five years... Politics has always been a, especially party names, Mm -hmm. has engendered immediately emotional responses. So if it was called culinary Republican or culinary Democrat, it would still get an emotional response, almost almost unavoidable. What has happened in five years is the political landscape has changed where all political party names are poison. 
But one ain't could be because there's right. people with good knowledge and information who aren't giving it to me only because of the poison of libertarian. Well, that's easy to fix. I totally understand. And that's why if you ask me a political question, I probably will not answer it because I want to be as inclusive and not put anybody in a spot where they have that emotional response as you were talking about. So I wish you very good luck with that. And I think you're on the right track. And I think you're doing the right thing by trying to get more people to be a part of what you're doing. And as you know, we talked about before, we have a lot of runners who listen to this show and a lot of people who are into fitness, a lot of people trying to get back into fitness. And you've pretty much just kind of stated how long you've been in the food industry, how long you've worked with food. And one of the things that you're really keen on is kind of the the history of food and what history class has taught us about food and, and the things that maybe we've gotten wrong or things we think we're right about were really wrong. What are some of those things? Or what, where did that come from? Where did that passion come from for you to kind of help people learn the correct history about the food in America? That's a really loaded question. It, it has a couple of different avenues or rabbit holes. One of them is, interestingly, a political response. One of them is probably... It's harder to identify how things went wrong, and wrong might not be the correct phrase. So just to get to be brief in the political response, food went wrong when the government got involved in things. Now it's called my plate. It used to be called the food pyramid. Mm. I remember that. I remember that from school. Yeah, and and pretty much everybody does, and they still have it now. And now there's a thing, uh, a subsidiary of AmeriCorp, now called Food Corps, in the schools. The misinformation happened because we intent or no intent. That's that's an entirely different show. The misinformation happened because wrong information was given. People were told a particular thing about saturated fats. That was a lie. People were told a particular thing about too much sodium. That was a lie. So corporations changed how they sold and what they sold to the consumers for, in an effort to do something. I would say to curry favor with the government and curry favor for subsidies, but it's exciting. It's emotionally charged. I'm not entirely certain. It's unfalsifiable. I think there's some truth to that, especially in big ag and big dairy, but it gets the weeds get deep fast and nobody cares. Well, right. relatively few people care. Where things have changed, we look at people like Nina Teicholz, and there's a handful of, probably two handfuls of people now who have really researched the whole idea of what it is that we've been told versus what it is that's actually happening. And the, one of my online friends, who is a both the keto lifestyle and has a keto restaurant business. Uh, he's not a PhD. He doesn't have an alphabet behind his name, but he has read a tremendous amount of information. So in terms of being informed, Jimmy's informed. Jimmy knows more about nutrition than most doctors know about nutrition. And medical schools don't teach nutrition. They teach, here's the my plate, you got two weeks to learn it, and then you regurgitate to your patients what the federal government said. Well, we, we know there's problems with that. The other side of 
getting history right is going back to listening to your grandparents, listening to your great-grandparents if they're alive, your aunts and uncles, and what did your family do? Now, this is where there isn't really a right or a wrong. What's, what has happened for a variety of reasons, some of them are because family has moved away, some of them are because nobody kept up with that and became easier to buy food than make food, but the tradition of culture has disappeared, well, not entirely, but to a great deal. People aren't connected to family through food anymore, and it's rare. So we come together for Thanksgiving, we have the same things, and Grandma used to do this, but how families lived as a unit and ate as a unit 100 years ago is very different than how it happens now. And there's a history to have, but it's an individual history. You have to go find it. It's not going to be in a book. It might be in grandma's book. It might be in her file cards. I have my grandma's whole of her uh, handwritten recipe cards. So that's the family history, and that's a you thing. Yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about because I have my mother's handwritten dirty rice recipe and, and nice. I'm I'm the one who learned how to make the gumbo so my grandmother's and my mother's recipe could live on in this family. So I know I know that feeling and I know what you're talking about. And what I think you're saying is that we can't there's no entity out there that can put an absolute, just a blanket statement for nutrition or food over the entire country, over entire civilization. It's got to be kind of learned and you kind of learn what's good for you, what works for you and go from there. One thing I had mentioned in, in a previous show is, and I'll never forget this, <laughs> this conversation I had with a nutrition teacher back in college. Now I'm going to age myself and I don't mean to, but it's over, you know, over 20 years ago, and I specifically asked about sugar, specifically asked about what it does to the body. Is it harmful? Should we use it? I had a specific question about sugar, because at the time, knowing what I know now and what big sugar used to peddle out in the past is that the, the response she gave me was that, oh, there's no negative consequence to putting sugar in your body. It may cause cavities, but other than that, it doesn't do anything to the body. And as a very impressionable freshman in college, I thought, okay, all right, I'm going to just consume any amount of sugar I want, whether it's processed, whether it's natural, whether it's added. And it really affected me as I became an adult. It really affected me as you know my nutrition change and my food change. And I, I found out that this is, you know, these empty calories, I'm not burning anything. I, I quit playing sports with, had a very sedimentary lifestyle. And looking back, it had a lot to do with my weight gain, had a lot to do with my just feeling lethargic, it had a lot to do with, of course, the cavities I got, I know that. But that was a message that was actually sent out there that sugar wasn't bad for your body, you need to look at the saturated fats, you need to look at the sodium. And when you hear stories like that, like that, that has to upset you. That has to make you feel a certain way. I'm not angry about it. I used to be, but there's no point in being angry about it because I recognize who's behind it and what the goal was. 
And so I've kind of hit on that. I'm not going to beat the government up more, but there, you, you made a point earlier on, and I'm going to restate it, which is correct, that there is no such thing as one size fits all for anything, especially for nutrition. Now, it's, it is the case, and I'm pretty certain from everything that I've read, that sugar is a drug. Yes, it's a food additive, but it's a drug. It does more than just cause cavities. It, uh, in, my, if, in myself, I still, I love sugar. I ate an obscene amount of sugar in dozens of forms, in uh, so added sugar, in, in cakes and pies and desserts and all kinds of stuff, because as a baker and a pastry chef, oh, well, got to make sure it's good. But I liked it. I liked sugar as a kid. I liked the... I loved, and probably still would, love sugar bomb cereal. Cap'n Crunch peanut butter was the best. And the problems with sugar isn't just that it gives you cavities. It rewires your brain and changes how you deal with stress and pressure and how your body responds to both environmental and physiological stress. Getting off sugar is hard. It's tough. It's very, very hard to do. It's that's where the withdrawal comes in, but it's worth doing. There are some people who can tolerate it, and so where it becomes important for the person, I think everybody should cut back on sugar. So sugar is a funny thing. We say when we say sugar, when I say sugar, I mean added sugar. But it's particularly bad now because the refined grains and the way that flour has been changed, the way wheat has been changed as a plant from 100 years ago to what it is now to increase yields and to give it more shelf stability and all kinds of other things that are for a positive on the commercial side. There is a toll exacted from the human body on the consumer side. So flowers and grains end up turning into sugars in the body, and that ends up driving insulin. And so we have insulin resistance from a variety of sources. So if you're eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, holy crap, your pancreas is saying stop. So sugar as an additive and sugar and all the other things that it becomes sugar in digestion, it's very hard to avoid completely. So. I'm not giving medical advice. I'm just saying you're probably going to do your body a favor by learning how to omit a percentage of sugar from your diet. And this is where the one size doesn't fit all goes back to the person. It's really easy to just listen to somebody who looks like an authority, a teacher in college, some desk jockey bureaucrat saying, well, we've decided that this is the case. Oh, perfect. You're off the hook for responsibility. The problem is, the desk jockey doesn't have any accountability for when you start to get fat and when your health goes down the toilet and you're going to take pills from the doctor to fix the problem you could have avoided by not eating the food, the bureaucrat's off the hook. So you, dear listener, this is the didactic part of the show, you have a responsibility to pay attention to what happens to your body when you eat something. If you eat Dairy, no, wrong word. Well, dairy too. If dairy makes you feel bloated, well, pay attention. Learn what dairy makes you feel bloated. If you don't like the bloated feeling, omit the dairy. If you don't like the bloated feeling from flour, omit the flour. That's hard, but it's a good goal.
It's a very good goal. And it's uh, just like a fitness goal. Just like if you want to become a better runner, it's, it's all about making sure you find the right pair of shoes that works for you, right? You know, right fabrics that work for you the right time of day. And then of course the nutrition part of it too. And, and I know from experience, I don't like the bloated feeling when I run and I've gone through multiple pre-workouts, multiple pre-run rituals to make me feel less bloated where I, to a point where I drank nothing but water for a couple months just to kind of flush my system out and get me back to where I wanted to be until I found something that was good for me. And, and I, and I, what you said about dairy, I am lactose intolerant and I know I can't, (laughs) if I want to enjoy a good night with some ice cream, it's not going to be a good morning. So I know exactly what you mean. And in regard to the work you've done in the food industry, and I know some people listening might say, well, they're making it sound easy there, but it's really hard. Like for someone who wants to get on the right nutritional track and maybe just wants to make more food at home, more good, organic, healthy food at home, what kind of just tips and advice can you give to somebody just starting that process of just wanting to be a better cook, a better person who can prepare meals for themselves or their families that can help them you know, improve their nutrition and, and improve their fitness? One of my frustrations as a guy who writes recipes and a guy who reads recipes is time. There's no way I know how long it takes for this to happen in your kitchen. I can't. It's not possible. So anytime you're reading a recipe that says do this for five minutes, what that really means is the person who wrote the recipe did it for five minutes and it worked. What does medium high heat look like? Is it the same on that person's stove as your stove? Is it gas or electric? What kind of pan do you have? How big is the pan? How thick is the cut of food? Learning to cook, and this is where people are really amazed at what restaurant cooks and restaurant food tastes different. It's not a time thing. If it takes 10 minutes or five minutes or 30 seconds, then that's what it takes. There's no way to know that. So when you're cooking at home, And it's easy to feel anxious because if you burn the ingredients, then you've made garbage. And and at home, the ingredients in the pan, that represents cash. And if you're throwing cash on the garbage, that's just maddening. I get that part because I paid for it too. So it's okay to start with lower heat. The things that in the cookbook I wrote and the way that I tell everybody, when you're cooking, don't look at the clock, listen to the pan and smell the food. It's a three senses thing happening. You're watching what's going on, you're listening to what's going on, and you're smelling what's going on. The listening part is, so you have, let's just imagine you have a saute pan, you have a pan, let's take away funny terms. You have a pan on the stove, and it's on medium, let's say five out of 10. And you put some oil in the pan, and it spreads out nice, and you add onions. And they're gonna go as the heat, so from the physics standpoint, when you have something, let's, I don't know what it is, let's say the pan is 350 degrees, and you have something that is 72 degrees. 350 is going to be reduced by some factor of degrees because you put a cold thing in a hot thing. But that heat's going to come back up. What happens audibly is that sizzle 
it starts kind of low as a tone, and it grows a little bit higher in pitch, and it also increases in frequency. As that's happening, that's your audible cue that heat is returning to the pan, and those onions are going to go from nice and translucent to burn fairly quickly. So something has to happen. A couple of things can happen to fix this condition. It's not a problem. One, take the pan off the heat, remove the source of heat, the sizzling will go away. Add something what? Add something else to it. So water is in a great way to take heat out of the pan, to slow the, what's happening in the pan, and water, like H2O, has the great advantage of being nothing. You're adding something, but fundamentally all you're adding is seconds on the clock because it all evaporates, and now we're back to where we started. Tomatoes. Canned tomatoes, fresh tomatoes. Tomatoes are water. They don't look like water, but they are water. Celery, carrots, onions, uh, more veggies, more stuff that's going in the pan to take the heat down is another way to manage the heat. And you're going to hear the sizzle go low again. That comes back up. That's the audible cue. The other thing that happens is as it cooks, it's releasing its aromas. So you have these onions. And they're getting to the point, they're getting a kind of a high sizzle, they're getting a little bit of color on them, and you want to add some garlic. Now, a thin sliced garlic, or even the, the crushed stuff in the jar, it goes from nicely cooked to brown or burnt in a matter of seconds. It doesn't take long, but I don't know how many seconds. So put the garlic in the pan and use your nose. As soon as you smell it, now we got to go. Now add the tomatoes, add some water, add something else in there to slow down the heat. Stop the burn, but there's that good brown, that brown, those various colors of brown on the food, well-seared meat, good color on the onions. All of that fundamentally is caramel. And in the cooking, in the pan, caramel is flavor. So I started this off by what do restaurants cooks do? They look at the clock. They're looking at the pan. They want to see what's going on in the bottom of the pan. They're listening and they're smelling. And when the sounds and the aromas and the colors are right, that's when they do the next thing, whatever the next thing is going to be. But all of that color translates into magnificent, deep, rich flavors on your palate. So you're like, wow, you get those upfront notes and you get that really big, wide flavor. And then you swallow. And then 30 seconds later, they say, oh my gosh, there's this other flavor. Well, it's practice, it's time, it's experience, but it's not magic. It's just patience. So slow down your cooking, pay attention to what you've fundamentally the food's talking to you. You just don't want to you haven't learned to speak food yet. Once you learn to speak, saute or cook or sear, whatever you want to call it, now you're in a position where you can increase your flavor game. So everyone at the table will say, Wow, man, Mary, this is fantastic. Well, Mary feels good about what she did. Mary wants to do that again because it feels good to get a success, feels good to get a win, even if it's a small one. And Mary may say, well, I didn't do anything. I just listened to the food, but that's okay. It's an accomplishment. It's a good thing. And I know the listeners can't see Dan like I can right now, but I can just see the excitement and how you light up talking about food and talking about cooking. And that's really just fun to see. And what I didn't hear there, and I, I want to ask you this question, and this is an actual, this is a personal question too. 
when you cook, and I'm not talking about if you're cooking for a restaurant or as a chef or whatever, when you're cooking at home, like when does salt come into play when you're actually cooking? When is it added? Do you add it? Do you use it? How does salt work with the food that you prepare? That's really a good question. My daughter's getting over a cold, so I made her some chicken stock and I told her never, I never salt stock at the beginning. It's always salted at the end. And the primary reason for that is I don't know how far it has to be cooked down to concentrate the flavor. Now, that concept is is easy to say. We call it, we reduce the stock, reduce it in quantity, reduce it in volume by cooking the water off. The steam comes out, the flavor stays in. The salt problem becomes a problem if you reduce it so far that all you really get is that salt taste. So salt stocks at the end. Now, back to that pan of onions. I will lightly sprinkle salt on the onions and the first thing in the pan because the salt is going to help draw the water out, which is going to help it evaporate faster and give me access to those sugars. These are sugars we like. We don't mind sugars in the celery and the carrots and the parsnips and the turnips and the onions. That's okay. That's going to help them brown better, more quickly, and then we get our cooking going on away. I'm pretty liberal with my salt. And it's actually the keto guy, my friend Jimmy. When we were talking, I, I'm not now, I was never actually full on keto. I was pretty much keto ish. I've, I've pulled back a little bit. But we were talking about having sugar cravings. Like, man, all I really want is a candy bar. Well, if you're craving sugar, as crazy as it sounds, try salt. So I have a scoop of peanut butter, unsalted or unsweetened peanut butter, and a little bit of salt on top of that. And Or I, I will break down and have a hint of lime chips because they're not potatoes. I, don't, I rarely eat potatoes, but I, I'll, I'll take some carbs. <laughs> but it's the salt. And it's a crazy thing to think that what your body is craving is sodium, but it feels like it wants sugar. Now, for myself and probably for most people, who respond to that signal. I want sugar. Okay, I'm going to give you sugar. For the first five seconds, like, yeah, that's what I want. A minute later, you're like, oh, man, that is not what I want. Now it's too late. I mean, in, at least daintily, it's too late. So salt fixes that craving and adjusts a few things. Now, I don't use, I don't use the stuff in the red box, the blue box, not saying names, I don't use anything that's free-pouring and colorless. Don't use it. The problem with those salts is they're almost entirely only sodium chloride. Now, sodium happens to be vital to human health. (laughs) No sodium, you're dead. So cutting out sodium from your doctor is, well... Not good. Don't (laughs) don't do zero sodium. That's not a good Mm -hmm. idea. What has happened in the process of turning that salt white is it has been cooked at some obscene temperature to eliminate all the micronutrients. So here we are back to modern science doing something that seems to be for the good, but in the long run, it isn't the good. So eliminating all the micronutrients out of the salt, which our body needs, to then put it into a package so it flows nicely out. Well, that's convenient. We like convenience. 
Well, the trade-off is an imbalance in health for a minor convenience at the table. Uh, I'll take the inconvenience. Thank you very much. Because now we're going to end up taking pills and eating all this other stuff that we can avoid by fixing the problem in the first place. So uh, I do have preferences. People may have emotional issues with the pink Himalayan Himalayan salt for a variety of reasons. There is a company called Redmond Real Salt, which is a U.S.-based company. It's an old Dead Sea out in Utah, and uh, it's pretty tasty salt, loaded with all the micronutrients the body needs, at least in some portions, which is better than zero in the stuff in the blue box. Um, But I do, I'm quite prolific with my salt. And then, of course, at the end, check the seasoning at the end. Yeah, at the end, yeah. And and I'm glad you mentioned that because for the longest time, and this is kind of how I grew up, and my parents were were in the healthy food and both my brother and I played sports and wanted us to eat well and rarely ever salted food, at least my my dad. You know, my mom, I'm sure she saw because her food was delicious. But for the longest time, my dad, and now to this day, he does not really salt his food. He doesn't, he, he believes it's unhealthy. And for the longest time, me growing up, I didn't salt the food that I cooked. And I got to a point where I was like, this food is bland. Like this food is, I can't taste anything regardless of what I made. And whether it was steak, chicken, beef, you know, pastas, pastas, anything like that. And finally, I can say now I, I do salt the food that I cook. I don't think I salt it as liberally as, you know, a chef or any restaurant, but I do use salt. And I've, I've noticed that once I started incorporating more salt into my diet, I really felt better too. I did. I cut down on the sugar and increased the salt a little bit. And I, I actually felt better. My muscles felt better. I felt like I was retaining water better or actually using the water in my system better. So, and I think that's kind of the things you're talking about. Like people have this negative connotation of salt. Like it is a bad thing to have in your diet. or It is a bad thing to add to the end of a dish. When in theory, like our bodies need it. Our body, especially if you're a runner, especially if you sweat often, like that stuff coming out of your pores, that's not just water. Like that's actually salt coming out. And you have to replenish that. And of course, every commercial you see will, hey, get this sugary drink into you after you you work out. Get this thing (laughs) quick. (laughs) Get get this sugary drink into you. But, you know, it's not that the sugar we need, it's the salt. Well, when I was teaching culinary students, uh, we didn't... We had various versions of different free-flowing white salts, and maybe we got one of those gourmet salts, and they weren't really a big deal then. They were very hard to find. Now they're pretty easy to find. So the stuff that's called iodized salt, a lot of people rightfully complain that that particular salt doesn't taste good. Never mind what it does to the food and never mind what possible health benefits it can bring. It doesn't taste good. So people aren't going to put something on food that they don't like how it tastes. And iodized salt can, to some people, it's like cilantro. Not everyone gets it, but sometimes it tastes a little metallic. It tastes bleh, yuck. White kosher salt can also have just this 
an unpleasant taste. Now, it happens that there are scores of other kinds of artisanal to separate from, there's commercial, but they're not like big commercial. Uh, Artisanal sea salts you can get that have the micronutrients in them that aren't processed to the degree that those free-flowing salts are processed. And here's where it gets interesting. All those different salts, even though there's still sodium chloride and 88 other things, they all taste different. So you can get a salt that you say, wow, this really does taste good. Now, I've got probably half a dozen or more different salts. I've got a smoked salt. I've got, I've got mm-hmm. sea salt from someplace off of the beach in Costa Rica. And it sort of tastes like, it's not sandy, but it tastes like sea. Well, I, in certain dishes, that's, wow, that's really good accompanying flavor in addition to having salt. So if you're listening saying, one, it's very hard to shift gears because you were told for so long that salt is bad for you. Uh, if you're a reading type, I recommend the book called The Salt Fix by Dr. James. Then I can't even say his last name. It's very long. Uh, it goes into why you were told that, who was it that told you that, why did they come to this conclusion incorrectly, and one of the most important things to take away about in, about eating salt is excess salt is excreted, either in sweating or other bodily functions. So you don't, it, it's not stored, it's gone. It's not like uranium, you don't, you know, you can get rid of salt. So this is one of those things where, and read read about sugar too. Find out what's going on with sugar at the big level, and then find out how it happens to you. What's going on in your body? Find out the same level of salt. I'm not saying everyone's going to respond the same way, but everyone does respond to more information. More knowledge is good. Find out how it works for you. Find out what was wrong about the information you were told. Find out why. <laughs> There's a lot in there, and I I can't accurately recounted because I read it a while ago, but there's a lot of things in there from, and he's a doctor, he's an MD. So he gets in, it's like, this is, we're telling people wrong information, possibly to fundamentally sell them pills to fix the problem. And this is where we get in this big circle. So you asked me, am I get, do I get mad? One of the things I get frustrated about is the medical schools and the medical industry, mostly isn't interested in teaching wellness, preventative health measures. They're interested in treating the symptoms you have and not really eliminating the problem or teaching you how to eliminate the problem. So one of the ways to eliminate a lot of the problems is change your diet, eat better food, and your health will improve. That's, I know that sounds tough to a lot of people. I know it sounds, you know, you don't, Every day I drink my three Mountain Dews and or every day I have to have my Coke or, or you know, I have to have my coffee with half of it being creamer. And, and you know, I, I know I've been there before. I've, I've been at that point. But personally, and again, I'm not a doctor either. I know what worked for me. I know cutting sugar from my diet was a lifesaver for so many reasons. For, and I've, I've already talked about why I do like my gummy bears. I'm not going to lie about that. I do. <laughs> I can't, like, that's the thing I can't kick. I do like my gummy bears. But other than that, like I try to stay away from the sugars and 
in my 20s, I had enough sugar to last a lifetime for most individuals. I'll be honest with you. But we're, we're talking to, to Dan Reed. And, and before I let you go, Dan, I, I wanted to, to ask you this. So again, we were kind of harping on people maybe starting this cooking journey, this nutrition journey. And you kind of spoke about how to use feeling and how to not always just go strictly off of a recipe you find or a time limit you find or anything like that. You know, for the person starting this, is there certain utensils in, in the kitchen, certain pot that you like, certain something that, that's universally good? I know we've already said nothing is universal. You have to do it for yourself. But you being the person you are, is there any item in the kitchen that if someone's starting this journey to become their own cook, their own chef, that you say, hey, you need to have this in your kitchen or you need to have these things in your kitchen? That's a very good question, and I'm going to answer it backwards. There's really one tool that pretty much every commercial kitchen has them, and I absolutely cannot stand tongs. I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. And the the principal reason for that is if you look at they're sharp on the end and they they just cut the food, especially when it's nicely used. So you've in particular on fish. And I've seen more cooks destroy a beautiful piece of fish with these stupid tongs because they squeeze too hard and they break it apart. It's like, what's going on with you? So I would say, throw away your tongs or save them for cleaning out the drains. Uh, the tools that I use, I use a lot of wooden spoons. I use <laughs> I use a lot of wooden spoons. I like wooden spoons. Uh, nowadays, there's the silicone for spatulas is to the point where you can use them in hot pans and they don't melt. <laughs> and it wasn't the case 20 years ago. They actually melted in the food. Think about that. The last time you were at a restaurant 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. So wooden spoons, rubber spatulas. I use really large, like 12 inch forceps. They look like surgeons forceps. Now that I'll use because that I can grab onto the food, move a particular piece when I need to move a particular piece. Uh, shake the pan, use the wooden spoon, use the spatula. Uh, I use, they look kind of like a baker's icing spatula. They're offset spatulas, and they actually are bakers, but they're fantastic in the kitchen. Not a big fan of those restaurant-sized pancake turners because they don't get into small pans very easily. They're clunky. They don't really fit in kitchen drawers. They're very big. just... The home doesn't have a lot of room for that stuff. I don't, I have them, but I don't like they're in toolboxes someplace. Uh, smaller tools for home are just easier to work with. So if anything, wooden spoons, chopsticks, very handy. Also for moving the food, stirring, you know, just getting stuff out of the pan. I use a lot of metal bowls. I use an obscene amount of metal bowls. I probably have 30 metal bowls, uh, lots of small ones, all nesting sized. As far as pots go, there's a lot of choices. The thing to avoid is the stuff that's hanging on the kitchen aisle in your grocery store for $7.99. That is paper-thin aluminum. Don't buy that because all that's going to happen is it gets, it gets hot or cold. It doesn't really hold the middle ground, and all your food's going to burn. Uh, it's impossible to clean because it's porous, and <laughs> you're going to get mad. Well, don't get mad. You don't need $10,000 pots. You don't even need $1,000 pots. A good stainless steel wine or stainless steel whole pot, and they're pretty affordable with 
like a thick bottom. It's got like a copper plate inside. And the purpose of the copper is for heat conductivity and even distribution of heat. Because sometimes burners have a hot spot. And so it holds the heat, it reduces the heat, and stainless steel cleans fairly easily. And that's, you need a couple of pots, but you can, I don't know what the prices are, but you can get a decent set of pots for a couple hundred dollars. Christmas is coming. You heard that Christmas is coming and, and you're absolutely right. And, and thank you for telling me about the, the $7 pots about 10 years too late. I appreciate oh, that. Thing. <laughs> I mean, where were you? Where were you? No, I'm just getting to, th- you're absolutely right. One, you know, once I invested in, in a good, and I say invested, you just said it's not, you're not going to break the bank, but you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for and you can get a long lasting pot pan and it's going to last you a long time. So. I, I'm going to add one thing, and this is going to make somebody really mad. Those black Calphalon pans, they look amazing. Man, they are impressive to see. And the reason is you can't see what's happening to the food. In stainless steel, you can see the gradations of color happening. In black, you can't tell. There was a big push for those in the last few years, man. Big push. Oh, man, these are the, the best thing ever. Well, there was so. a big push 30 years ago, and I still don't yeah. like them. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate you being part of the show. So I, I know you have your own show and, and you've kind of talked about maybe, you know, changing the name or doing the things you're going to do in the future. Just real quick, why don't you go ahead and promote what you do? How do people get in contact with you and, and what they can expect if they were to listen to uh, your show? Well, the easiest place to catch the shows is on culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts and all 208 shows are there. And I am all over the map. So I have talked to Peter Reinhardt about Detroit-style pizzas. I've talked to chefs about baking and about cooking. I've talked to economists about cash and currency. I've talked to Ron Paul about politics. It's everywhere. You know, I'm dropping names because I'm shameless. So the culinary part, the liberty part, and the part that doesn't fit on the checkbook is anything else that interests me. So there are people who are on there that don't really fit exactly, but they have a very interesting story to tell. And I have a thing at the end of the show that makes every show turn into a food show anyway. So I love it. And I think one thing that we can all kind of get from what you're doing and, and what we're trying to do here is have a conversation. Like, just have the conversation. Like, right. don't don't make any assumptions. Don't make don't have any preconceived notions. Just have the conversation. You might learn something. Most times you will learn something. And you'll learn that a lot of us think the same way and we want the same things. We want to be healthy. We want the relationships in our life. And all of us need proper nutrition and a proper diet to be healthy. You'll see the stories about what Michael Phelps ate you know, while he was training, but he burned a gajillion calories a day. So he was just trying to put anything in his body. But at the same time, it was calculated. It was calculated what he was doing. And me being a middle-aged man who does not burn as many calories as Michael Phelps, you're like me and, and we have to watch what we eat. And we have to teach our kids to watch what they eat and make sure we don't give them inaccurate information like we may have gotten And to go back on your first point, we need to learn what works for us individually and use that going forward. So thank you, Dan. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. My pleasure.
we'll have a post to uh, your links in your show and the show notes. But thank you, Dan. You have a great rest of your day. I really, I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you. I did too. Thank you very much.